China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Dan Tobin, a member of the China Studies faculty at National Intelligence University and a senior associate here at the Freeman Chair. Today, we'll be discussing the importance and impact of the 19th Party Congress. Dan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Just quickly before we begin, I need to offer the standard caveat that any statements of fact or opinion I offer on this podcast are solely my own. I'm only speaking for myself and not for any part of the U.S. government. So before we dive into party congresses and the 19th Party Congress, I wanted to ask you sort of an intellectual biography question, which is for listeners who aren't familiar with you or your work, I wonder if you could give us just a quick background of where your institutional home is now, what you work on, and if you wouldn't mind, just a a quick potted intellectual biography of how did you get interested in these issues? Sure, thanks. So I'm at National Intelligence University, which is in Bethesda, and it's actually part of the U.S. intelligence community, and we provide graduate education to folks not only in the intelligence community and in military intelligence, but also from other government agencies. So we have some students from the State Department, some from FBI, places like that. So it's kind of a, it's a mid-career, one-year master's program where I teach classes on, uh, and some intro classes on China and also some classes on China's strategy and foreign policy. But uh, my background is I've spent uh, my entire career pretty much in the intelligence community, first at the Defense Intelligence Agency, then at uh, U.S. Indo-PACOM, uh, where I was the senior analyst in the China Strategic Focus Group out there. And like many in the intelligence community, um, I closely followed the scholarship on China. I actually got my master's degree at Johns Hopkins SICE here in D.C. So I've always been interested in Chinese uh, leadership and elite politics, but it's only been within the last several years that I've begun to study more carefully the ideology of the Communist Party of China and look at um, how that ideology reflects its strategy and its strategy and policy processes. And I think those issues are actually surprisingly neglected within the field uh, in a a comparative sense. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that going forward. So today we're going to focus primarily on uh, 19th Party Congress, where you've made some strong arguments uh, to center the importance of the 19th Party Congress, but to level set and clear out some from ground room for folks who are maybe coming fresh to this issue. I wonder if I could get you to just explain about a party congress. We know these occur every five years. But can you talk through what are they, what happens during a party congress, and why are they important for China's political system? Sure. What the regime calls national party congresses, and we often shorten it to party congress so as to not confuse with the similar acronym of the National People's Congress, which is China's legislature, and would have a similar acronym. But what we call party congresses, as you mentioned, they occur every five years, and they're the apex of China's strategy and policy process. And they last about a week. They include 2,000-something party members out of 89 million. And they really do three things. Um, I I like the framework that the veteran China scholar Alice Miller has used to, to describe the significance of party congresses. And she basically makes three points. The first one is they establish the party's line in all major policy areas. And they do that through a report that is delivered by the incumbent general secretary. So right now that's Xi Jinping. And we'll talk more about that as we get into um, the report in general and the 19th Party Congress report in particular. 
But they also revise the party's constitution, and in particular, they tend to focus on revising the general program, which is kind of a little bit like the preamble, but it lays out the party's goals and its line in a very succinct way. And the third thing they do is they change the party leadership. So a party congress elects a new central committee that serves a term for five years. It also selects the political bureau of the central committee, which is about 25 members on the basis of party, state, and military's leading institutions. And that group also selects, there's a Politburo standing committee that runs the country on a day-to-day basis. That right now is seven members. And so that's the piece that's focused on a lot more by a lot of the analysis in English. You'll hear a lot of focus on the makeup of the new Politburo, Politburo Standing Committee, Central Committee, other leading party institutions. And then sometimes you hear some focus on the change in the Constitution, often whether the incumbent top leader has managed to get his ideological formulations entered into the Constitution. And that's often framed in terms of a metric for that leader's power. However, I think that Alice Miller's framework in putting the issue of party policy in every major dimension first is actually the most significant and the one that we ought to focus on in thinking about the importance of a party congress. So thanks, Dan. That, that's helpful to hear You know what a party congress is, what it does. I think last question before we move on is just helping us understand who the audience is for a, a party congress. That will be important when we talk about the 19th Party Congress. As you mentioned, this is a convening of the Central Committee to vote on this Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee. So clearly one of the audiences is the very senior leadership. I'm assuming another audience is the entirety of the party membership. Who else is listening to a party congress? And more importantly, when they craft messaging that comes out of the party congress, who do they think or who do they want to be hearing it? The primary audience is obviously the party members themselves, the party elite at various levels. But certainly the Chinese people are also a very significant audience. There's an enormous, well-orchestrated effort to publicize the party congress, both within the party and the government and other institutions. There's an effort to study the contents and think through their implications. And the reason that this is significant and kind of maybe counterintuitive for us as Westerners is the way that ideology works within China's system is kind of different than what we tend to assume. And the way that the significance of leadership speeches is considerably more under their system than perhaps it is under our system. For example, a State of the Union address in the U.S. is an important signal, but it's not anywhere near as important as a party congress is in the Chinese system. And just to step back for a second and kind of think through the way that we have tended to think about ideology in China and then to contrast it with the function it actually plays in the Chinese system. So there's often a sense that ideology in China might be a mechanism by which the party retains control or might be something that in the wake of the Soviet collapse is something they're simply holding on to because if they let go of it, they'll lose their internal cohesion. But I think these are both incomplete understandings of how ideology works in China's system. So China's system is built along Leninist principles, and one of the key pieces of Marxism-Leninism that the party has retained is this idea of historical and dialectical materialism. And in a nutshell, what that means is that the party believes it can make scientific assessments about the world and about different policy areas 
and it can design its policies in light of those assessments. And so the Party Congress is really a, an encapsulation of the high-level assessments of the party and its goals and in particular policy areas. And it serves a function to mobilize the entire party and all of its institutions to advance those goals. So whatever that particular area is, whether it's the environment, whether it's economics, military affairs, there is a way in which the Party Congress serves as an authoritative marker for the next five years. It also tells you what of the various sort of trial balloons that party leaders have put forward over the last several years have been ratified by the entire party at a very high level. So the party does engage in some experimentation and some cases where they say, you know, they roll out a new policy and sometimes they withdraw it. But when you see a policy endorsed in the Party Congress report, it's a pretty authoritative marker that that is the direction going forward. My colleague, Peter Mattis, wrote a piece uh, a couple of years ago where he coined the phrase, the Party Congress test. And the idea is, if you're looking at a piece about China in a particular area of policy, you should see a reference to the Party Congress, the most recent Party Congress, as a marker. And if a piece doesn't make a reference to the Party Congress, it's a little bit suspect that they're kind of skipping a step in analysis of China, because the Party Congress really is an authoritative marker of the party's strategy at a high level. Taking our discussion a slice further, because so much of your central argument on the 19th Party Congress is in comparison to previous party congresses and arguing that this marked a fundamental pivot or transition moment in China's political and, and even geopolitical trajectory, what does that mean about previous party congresses? And I wonder if you could talk to us or level set prior to 2017 in the 19th Party Congress, were the 16th, 17th, 18th Party Congress relatively subdued affairs? And that's what makes the 19th Party Congress so uh, so striking to you? Past party congresses have often been looked at when we teach about Chinese history and, and contemporary Chinese history in terms of the specific elements of reform in the post-Mao era that they have put forward. And so you'll often see party congresses discuss in particular with respect to economic reform. I think in a comprehensive sense, one of the least famous party congresses is actually one of the most significant, and that's the 13th Party Congress in 1987. And that's a party congress that actually consolidated quite a few of the post-Mao reform policies and goals that we now think of as emblematic of the reform era, but they actually hadn't been all gathered together until that party congress. And the party today still points back to several important pieces of that consolidation in 1987. So one of those that was very significant was this idea of the primary stage of socialism. And this comes out of the evaluation of the Mao era, where they said, we were actually trying to realize socialism, an advanced socialist country, on too weak of an economic base. And so what we're going to do is we're going to allow different forms of ownership in order to build the economic base so that we can realize full-blown socialism at a higher level of comprehensive modernization. And what they said is we're going to kick back the modernization deadline, the deadline for modernizing China in a comprehensive way which in the early reform era had been the year 2000. The 1987 13th Party Congress kicked it back to mid-century. And that's also where you first had a general secretary at that time, Zhao Ziyang, 
talk about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. So the 13th Party Congress also laid out the party's basic line for the primary stage of socialism. And this kind of lays out the several reform policies as well as the goals for comprehensive modernization. And the party still adheres to that today. So the 19th Party Congress is actually not a repudiation of the reform era. It's saying they need a new set of policies to guide the country for the new stage that they've arrived at along the path to achieve modernization. This is obviously a natural segue into the meat of your argument and and the 19th Party Congress itself. And just as a few seconds of context here, this occurs in, in late 2017. This is five years into Xi Jinping's first term as general secretary, first term as chairman of the Central Military Commission, and first term as the president of the People's Republic of China. The office of the presidency, there will be developments of that, not at the 19th Party Congress, but at the what was then upcoming National People's Congress in March of 2018. And as you alluded to, that's where the PRC constitution was revised to get rid of the term limit on the office of the presidency. For most of us who were looking at the 19th Party Congress, the focus was primarily on this issue of personnel. There were whispers in the air that Xi Jinping had designs to stay beyond the quasi-norm of two terms as general secretary. And so most of the chatter in class was looking at, are we going to see signs emerge of a possible successor or successors which would be somewhat in keeping with the previous stepping stones to leadership that Xi Jinping himself had gone through being elevated at the 17th Party Congress. You found something important and interesting elsewhere in that Party Congress. Specifically, it was in the report that Xi Jinping delivers. I wonder if you can start at a high level and talk about what was striking about that report, as you've said, Previous general secretaries have stood up before the Central Committee at previous party congresses and delivered speeches as well. So what was so striking about this in terms of form or content? The organization of the report is very similar to past reports, and it's probably useful to just touch on that really briefly. So these reports kind of lay out a theme. And since uh, I believe since 87, maybe since 82, the word socialism, the Chinese characteristics has always been part of the theme for the report. And then they evaluate the past five years. And then they modify the party's guiding theory in light of new conditions and what the party says it's learned over the past several years. And they then modify its its long-term modernization targets. And then they lay out the party's guiding policies in what's now nine policy areas. And these are actually, they sort of occur in the same protocol order each time, which is economics, politics, culture, social affairs, the environment. The environment was added in 2012. National defense, national reunification. The headlines actually honk Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Macau affairs, but it amounts to the national reunification policy, foreign affairs, and party building. And so the pattern is consistent, but Xi Jinping's report was really a milestone because of the argument that it made about where China had come and where China needs to go in the future. And uh, I argue in the paper that there's three major areas, and they're actually pinned to a statement that Xi Jinping made about saying that socialism with Chinese characteristics had entered a new era that was of great significance for China's development, for international socialism, and for human development. 
And I argue that uh, in each of these three areas, the report is a watershed in what it says. And it's also of great significance to the nature of U.S.-China rivalry. And it also should have led us to reevaluate some of the standard views that we had about China in each of those areas. And so to start with kind of this idea of the new era that Xi Jinping proclaimed, the phrase that the audience may have heard that he articulated about saying China had stood up, grown rich, and was in the process of becoming strong. And many folks pin that to sort of the Mao era being uh, stood up, restoring China's sovereignty, the Deng or post-Mao reform era, grown rich. And then this next phase, the, the new era that she was proclaiming is the era in which it would grow strong. And what's interesting about this is actually not a repudiation of the reform era basic line. It actually still adheres to the basic line. But what it says is that actually China has caught up in quite a few areas. And even if on a per capita basis, it's still a developing country. As a whole, it's the number two economy in the world. And that means that there's a demand domestically and internationally for China to play a greater leadership role in the world. And also that the set of policies it needs to manage the domestic and international challenges of being now the number two country in the world on its way to number one are different than the sets of policies it needed in the past. So there's a section of the report where they basically say, according to all this progress, um, we need to use historical and dialectical materialism to identify new theories and new policies in all these dimensions. And, and they actually lay out 15 rather than the nine you know, chapters that it's organized to. The 15 is another way of, at a more granular level, laying them out. And the implications of this occur in this three-part scheme that she has talked about, about China's development, international socialism, and then human development. So with respect to China's development, they, in the past, had set a modernization target of basically achieving modernization by mid-century. Xi Jinping actually accelerated that by 15 years. So that same language now refers to 2035, which was a new interim target. And she, for the first time, laid out the goal of, by mid-century, China's becoming a global leader in terms of composite national strength and international influence. And another way of, of phrasing it in the same section of the document is a great modern socialist country in every dimension. For the uninitiated, what is composite national power? The language in Chinese for that term is the one that had been translated in English many times as comprehensive national power. And so it's this idea of not simply military power or economic power, but the totality of a country's strength across, you know, even things like cultural influence, scientific achievement. There have been Chinese think tanks that have developed metrics by which they grade the countries in the world. And this is something that Chinese leaders uh, pay a lot of attention to. And I think it also speaks to the issue that while Xi Jinping said a global leader, he did not say the global leader. I think it's not credible to believe that this is a goal of remaining number two after another 30 years of very hard work. It's something where basically Xi Jinping sort of ripped open his shirt and there was a Superman t-shirt underneath and that's one of the interesting aspects of the Congress, that while the ideological components and the ideas expressed have maybe not been as unpacked as much by uh, China scholars, they were so dramatic that many non-specialists grabbed onto pieces of them. And so we have been having a more 
concerted discussion of China's global ambitions since the 19th Party Congress in the U.S., in conjunction with a lot of other things, Chinese actions in many domains. Yeah, as a follow-up to that, and returning to this issue of audience or audiences, the 19th Party Congress and the language used in that, and you've referenced some of the, the key phrases, of course, have had a galvanizing impact externally outside of China in capitals around the world who I think analysts, including yourself, took this as a wake-up call to a shifting level of Chinese strategic ambitions, as you say, based on diagnosis that its own national power was rising. Do you interpret that as, from Beijing's perspective, a unintended consequence, a necessary evil, or are they overtly trying to message their rising strategic ambitions, not necessarily to the United States, in order to provoke a backlash, but maybe to other countries in the region, essentially saying we're, we're destined for greatness. So begin lining up accordingly. How do you interpret the knock-on effects of the 19th Party Congress outside of the walls of Beijing? China's leaders, and in particular Xi Jinping, faced a dilemma when evaluating that China had reached a level of comprehensive national power that not only did it need to begin exercising more leadership if it was actually to become a global leader in several decades from now, but also they have this sense that in a number of dimensions of the competition, there is a danger if they don't start exercising leadership. So in a lot of emergent areas of high technology and what folks call new domains like space and cyber, they think that the norms are still up for grabs and that they need to participate in setting those norms so that they aren't deleterious or dangerous to China's domestic political system. That's a component of it. So they have this sense, and they've had a sense for a long time, that there is a danger as China rises in provoking an anxiety and provoking a balancing or an attempt by the United States to constrain China's rise. And so they've been aware of that for a long time. And even though that debate is not as open as it would be in a country with a, with a free press you know, we're able to detect some some parts of that debate. Even now, some Chinese scholars expressing concern that Xi Jinping has overreached. Hu Jintao and his selected works, which came out under Xi's tenure, went to the trouble to put a passage in where he was insisting that in 2010 that hide and bide was still the appropriate policy response. But there's it's a real challenge for China because they need to start exercising leadership if the goal is to become a leader over several decades. But when they begin to assert themselves, the contrast in values comes to the fore. And I think that's one of the elements with respect to the second of Xi's points, international socialism. There's a sense in quite a few of Xi's speeches that China's success over the last several decades should bolster the prestige of socialism in general, and that Chinese socialism should be the 21st century version of Marxism. And that is something that throws into relief the systemic differences in values between the United States political system and China's political system, which have implications internationally in terms of the kind of world that we want in a lot of particular dimensions. And those implications were not thrown in stark relief when China was simply interested in participating in the areas of the international order that it found beneficial while sort of keeping its head down. But now that China's leaders have reached the conclusion that they need to begin actually asserting leadership, that contrast of values is being thrown into stark relief. And so we're seeing that 
of course, not only in the United States, but reactions in Europe to some of what China's been doing both domestically and internationally and the, in international organizations, the way that it's advocated for values which are different than the ones that we would hope would prevail. I want, I want to drill down on that point specifically. I was just reminded as you were talking about the pushback that the 19th Party Congress language has, amongst other actions by Beijing, but that pushback that this has garnered. And in the previous podcast, I interviewed Pu Xiaoyu, who's at University of Nevada, Reno, and has written a really great book called Rebranding China, which is about status signaling from China. But he starts out first chapter with this quote from Deng Xiaoping in 1974. It's the one that says, China is not a superpower, will never seek to be one. If one day we should change our color and turn into a superpower, the people of the world should expose it, oppose it, and work together with the Chinese people to overthrow it. So it's just interesting how far uh, the uh, party leadership has come since 1974. One quick comment on that, because I think it is an example of how stark the 19th Party Congress was as a departure. So for most of my career, when you asked Chinese diplomats or Chinese scholars about China's contributing on global problems, you know, as late as the early 2010s, the response was China's feeding its own people and not contributing in unrest to the world writ large is enough of a contribution. They said, look, we're concentrating on our own development. We're one fifth of humankind. That's the contribution we're making. You know, David Shambaugh had a, in his 2013 book on China's emerging global role, he had a line in there that was something like, China is not actively contributing on any major international problems. That's not an exact quote, but that was the essence of the quote. And that has changed under Xi Jinping. So one of the major pieces of the watershed is to say, which as she says in the report, that China is ready to make greater contributions to humankind. And that is something that every leader from Mao to Xi had said was something that they had as an ambition in the future. And Xi Jinping says, we're ready to do that. And so he has this famous line that's not in the report, but that's often quoted, where he says, the world is so big, the problem's so many, the international community wants to hear China's voice, China's plan, China cannot afford to be absent. And that really is a stark departure from what Chinese diplomacy had been doing and what Chinese scholars had thought was prudent in the past. And so it's a major departure. And the piece that's significant in terms of the implications for the U.S. is that with community of common destiny, Xi Jinping's foreign policy vision that's pinned to the Belt and Road Initiative or One Belt, One Road, there's an actual platform for trying to realize a Chinese vision of the international order that runs on connectivity to China through multiple domains, where Beijing's ambition is that its standards, its platforms would be the ones underpinning a new era of globalization. That's something that Beijing didn't have in the past. It could articulate the need for a different international order or for the order to run differently based on different principles but it actually has a platform now to try to realize that. Now, it remains to be seen how much the backlash from COVID and other things upset that vision, but to date, the regime is still propounding it with great vigor, and if anything, is doubled down on the sense that its system is demonstrating its superiority and that it should be building an international community based on principles that draw some inspiration from China. During the Obama administration, of course, President Obama had famously criticized Beijing as being a free rider. 
I wonder if you could address this point of standards. It's another good issue where we've seen shifting perspective on the role we want China to play in standard settings bodies. We've seen a shifting evolution of how we've thought about where we want China to play. There's frustration when China is outside of standard bodies, creating its own parallel set of standards. There's frustration when China is in standards bodies. In terms of free riding, of course, the United States was the first to really stand up and oppose, try and strong arm partners and allies from joining the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIB, which was created by Beijing. I want to just unpack this a bit more because I think this will be an important topic to get right, which is, are we just being hypocrites by moving the goalposts on China consistently here from, we want you in the system. Oh, but when you're in the system, you're a bad actor. So get out of the system. Oh, but you're creating parallel efforts. We're going to block those. Imagine a good faith interlocutor in Beijing who's exasperated and saying, I'm not looking to overthrow the Communist Party. So this is the system we're dealing with. And you, the United States, have been dealing with a Communist Party since relations were normalized in 1979. So, so you were fine with the Communist Party then. Where is the play space for us? And what is the kind of narrow needle that you want Beijing to thread? I know there, there are folks who raise this issue. I mean, I've got my own answer for why I think, to be perfectly transparent, there's some level of shifting expectations in the United States, but there's also a shifting nature of Beijing's political regime, which matter here importantly for context. But I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this issue. And I think to tie this to something you were mentioning earlier, as we look at China's expanded role in the world, it strikes me as imprudent and indeed unethical to not provide a positive space for 1.4 billion people to integrate and have an expectation that they're allowed to grow prosperous, happy, and healthy. A lot of these issues are kind of swirling around now and I don't think are articulated well. And indeed, I think it would be easy to tease out a containment narrative from the United States right now if you wanted to, if you were Beijing. So I wanted to get your thoughts just on this kind of pile of issues here. But one is, where can China articulate a growing vision as it's Comprehensive national power grows. It should expect to play a larger role in the world. So what is your kind of through line on these issues where we're not in a cul-de-sac of hypocrisy of and shifting goalposts on licit legitimate route for China to grow big and strong? Does that mean we have to get rid of its current political system? Or do you see room for it to grow within this system that is one that can be accepted and tolerated by the United States? I think the place that I would start with is that sometimes I think the debate kind of sets up straw men on each side and sets up false choices. The term that I like is rivalry, which is not confrontation. But I think rivalry captures the state of the relationship well because it indicates there are real differences in goals that are incompatible and there are high stakes and there's a lack of trust. And just to clarify, incompatible means irreconcilable? Yes, I think that the long-term goals of the Communist Party of China are irreconcilable with the world that we want to see. But I don't think that that means that we have no interaction with China or that we have no cooperation in any dimension. I think that there are plenty of dimensions where our mutual interests align. Some of those in the past, I would have said the environment as well as global health with respect to 
COVID-19, some further trust has been lost there. People in the past have articulated areas like non-proliferation as an area where we might have some overlapping interests. However, my understanding, it's not my field, but my understanding from scholars is that that's an area where people's pessimism about China's actions has deepened over time, where there's a sense that the hope of cooperation in that area was misplaced. But I do think there are areas for cooperation. However, I think that the Communist Party of China's long-term goal is one in which its system is not simply safe from our intervention. Some people frame China's goals in terms of making the world safe for autocracy, so sort of removing some features of the system that tend to promote democracy or sort of push countries in that direction. So some people frame China's goals as simply a system that kind of sheds some of those norms. However, I think that's a misreading of the scope of the party's ambitions, which the party has tried to connect to mainstream nationalist ambitions in China in terms of China being a country that's respected for its achievements. And so what the party would like is a world in which its governance system is lauded for its governance achievements. And I think that's going to be difficult for the United States and its allies and partners, given the nature of China's domestic political system, as we see in issues like Xinjiang, currently what's happening in Hong Kong, what's been going on for a long time with respect to civil society and journalism in China. I think that there is a real incompatibility of values and that China's rise is accelerating or is catalyzing the friction associated with those sets of incompatible values. Because when China was too weak to actually try to advocate for its values on the international stage, it didn't matter so much. We could hope that we were socializing China's elites in particular areas. And a lot of the accomplishments people point to over the last several decades are areas where in some technocratic aspects, we were able to have some influence on things like airline safety in China. You know, we were able to provide some technocratic areas of education that were in mutual interest and that the regime was able to adopt. But there are some real serious long-term incompatible goals. And so I think that our approach needs to be one where we focus on deterrence, we focus on protecting our interests, and we take a more careful, skeptical eye of a lot of areas of cooperation that we might have been hopeful about several years ago, but that have not panned out. Thinking through China's future evolution here, I want to close out by prospective look on the upcoming 20th Party Congress, which will be in 2022. We're about halfway through the interregnum between the 19th and the 20th Party Congress. And of course, we're recording this at a pretty extraordinary moment in US-China relations, not only because of uncertainties about political leadership here in the United States, but also we're seeing a speed up of velocity and tensions or, or rivalry between the two countries. I wonder if you could just think out loud about your expectations or what you'll be watching for at the upcoming 20th Party Congress, given how momentous the 19th Party Congress is, where if we're linking China's rising ambitions in some way to its own assessment of its comprehensive national power, it's unclear to me what their assessment will be a few years from now, given that they are diagnosing that the development play space that they had a few years ago is shrinking. You see this come up again and again by statements by senior leaders, which of course will, will have a, an impact on their comprehensive national power. 
We'll be looking at the succession issue, of course, although I don't think there's anyone who's too optimistic about a leadership change in 2022. What are you watching for? What do you recommend that external observers should be paying attention to at that upcoming 20th Party Congress? So we're actually about to receive some interim markers in that we're on the cusp of actually a new five-year plan. We'll get a marker at the Central Committee plenum this fall, and then at the National People's Congress, the legislature will get a more substantial look at the next five-year plan that's covering 2021 and on. And that's going to be very significant because it's the first one that comes out as part of the new interim goal of 2035. And so there's kind of a stacked like offset policy and planning cycle between the party congresses and the five-year plans. They're offset from each other. So when new leaders come into office, they finish implementing the previous leader's five-year plan, and then they begin the process of drafting a new five-year plan. So we're going to see some adjustment probably in this five-year plan that comes up, and then We'll have the next party Congress as an opportunity to probably see some refinement of the 2035 goals. And so in some of the issues you talked about, what they're saying about the economy, what they're saying about military modernization, that's another area where they advanced the modernization timeline by 15 years at the 19th Party Congress and are now aiming to basically complete modernization by 35 and then have a world-class military force by 2049. So that's going to be a piece. We're also going to see probably a 15-year medium to long-term science and technology development plan that should come out uh, around the same time. 2020 had been a milestone. It was a comprehensive milestone that the party had been working on for quite some time and refining everything from the, the civil code being finished this year. So it'll be very interesting to see as they begin to flesh out the 2035 targets, what those are. And uh, I also agree that succession is still going to be an interesting issue to look at. Does Xi Jinping seem to be laying the groundwork for the next general secretary to succeed him in the future or not? Well, Dan, that's a um, that's a good place to end the discussion. want to recommend for folks who are interested in a more complete argument by Dan on the 19th Party Congress to check out originally a testimony he gave to the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission available on uscc.gov, or you can go to the CSIS website in the Freeman Chair to see a report, a bridged version of that, where Dan gets into this with oftentimes excruciating levels of detail. But uh, Dan, really uh, appreciate your time today and appreciate you veering off onto some pretty wide terrain here, thinking about China, its rise, and the future of both rivalry and cooperation between the two countries. Um, Look forward to future discussions. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jude. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 